thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. The Aloha 737 accident in Hawaii, where a large section of the Ford fuselage came off the airplane in flight. The fuselage at the uh, lap joints, or the upper and lower skins, just unzipped. Black lights and broomsticks, stress and strain, weight versus strength, non-destructive testing, and firing frozen chickens at fighter jet canopies. Well, if these topics excite you, then you came to the right place because that's what's in store for you this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your usual host, Vincent Aiello, but as you regular listeners know, every so often I need a break and turn the microphone over to a co-host who pursues different subjects of interest, and this week is more of that. Our friend and former U.S. Air Force flight test engineer Ken Katz is back with a technical discussion on non-destructive testing and other processes used to ensure complex and costly military aircraft remain airworthy from design throughout their service life. This isn't a shoot-down story or the latest salacious headline, but for those of you who like to nerd out, you're in for a treat on this one, and I'll be back with you again next week. All right, Primetime, take it away. Aircraft need strong and light structures in order to achieve high performance. Today, we're going to be joined by engineer Tim Kinsella, who's going to be talking to us about aircraft structures and how they're inspected. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Ken. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. Well, it's been uh, enjoyable talking with you over the last few months, and finally, we're going to uh, put together an episode. Yeah, finally. It's working out. Before we start, we like to begin our Fighter Pilot Podcast episodes with a introduction to who you are. So please tell us about your education, your experience, uh, what you're doing today. Sure. I've always been associated with, interested in whatever aerospace. My uh, dad worked for a company called Cleveland Pneumatic Tool that back in the, I guess, 50s, 60s, 70s, made landing gear for almost everything that flew. And my brother became an Air Force maintenance officer. So I always wanted to do that kind of thing. I wound up going to the University of Cincinnati, got a BS in physics. My uh, roommate at the time was an aerospace engineer, and he became, became I guess, uh, Captain Mark Sweeney, Navy captain. And uh, he retired as a uh, test pilot and a vice commander at Point Magoo and the commander of Pacific Test Wing and so forth. It was really interesting having an engineer and a physics major together, hanging out together and whatnot. We both, we still tell stories about uh, going out with our girlfriends at the time, now wives, and uh, the aerospace engineer and the physicist just could not figure out 15% of a tip and they had to do it. So, <laughs> But then we, um, you know, I really wanted to go into the military and really wanted to be in aerospace and aviation and everything. And then I wound up getting the news that because of some physical issue, I couldn't do that. 
not only could I not go into aviation, I couldn't do the military at all. So I was kind of devastated at the time, as you could imagine, and had no idea how in the world I was going to support a family with nothing more than a BS in physics, because you can't get a decent job without a PhD. And I wasn't about to do that. So I was just looking at a flying magazine one day and I saw this advertisement for non-destructive testing, which I had no idea what it was, but I looked at it and it was like, wow, that looks just like nothing but applied physics. So I thought I'd give it a shot. And uh, I went out to uh, school that taught that for, I don't know, I guess it was about six months out in Tulsa. And then uh, education wise, some years after that, I wound up at the University of Dallas, thanks to Lockheed, and got an MBA in engineering management and went to Georgia Tech for uh, RCS reduction course, went to the NTSB aircraft accident investigation course. It's an education that never stops, just like everything else. State of the art keeps evolving, and you got to keep up with it, and you're constantly being recertified and whatnot. So when I left that school that taught NDT, I wound up going to General Dynamics in Fort Worth and went into logistics. And right about the time of, I think it was the number four FSD F-16. And uh, I wound up going into logistics, which isn't something I really would have preferred, but it, getting the foot, foot in the door kind of thing. So I went in and it was tech pubs, technical publications. And I wound up writing the... Um, inspection manual, corrosion control, weight and balance, weapons loading manuals. And that was really cool. I mean, it got me to know the airplane really well. All for the F-16. Yes. And uh, it was really interesting. They, in order to validate some of those things, we went up to Hill Air Force Base, which was the F-16 depot. And they gave us an airplane for two weeks. They defueled and purged it and took off all the access covers, opened the doors and said, here are the books, make sure that what you wrote works. And there was an Air Force civil servant with us who um, actually admitted at one point, he really didn't care that much about airplanes. And I was like, well, what are you doing here? And he was a character, you know, that the weight and balance was all screwed up because there was no fuel or anything in the airplane. And there was one time he decided to stand up on the spine of the airplane and walk toward the tail. And it started to tip. And there were about four of us who dove for the cockpit and just hung onto the canopy rail to make sure it stayed on the nose gear. And this same guy, you know, you're supposed to unload your pockets and everything before you get on an airplane to reduce FOD and all that. Well, he didn't like doing that. And he repeatedly dropped pencils through the airplane strike, which luckily it was open top and bottom and went straight down to the ground. So when we left, we all got him a case of pencils, ordinary wooden number two pencils that all of which had his name printed on them so that when the airplane crashed some years later, they would know who to go talk to. <laughs> so then from there, after, I don't know, a couple of years, I got kind of tired of writing up other people's information and whatnot. And I moved over to a department called process control, which doesn't really tell you much, but it was basically a problem solving job. And that was fantastic. You know, it was early F-16 and, and there were all kinds of issues that came up that we had to figure out how to deal with. And uh, 
I was very lucky. I over the years, that's pretty much what I've always done, and I wound up working on, whether superficially or in depth, on about eighteen different airplanes or spacecraft, and it's really been great. After that, after about I don't know what it was, eight or nine years, I went up to Hamilton Standard at the time, Hamilton Sunstrand now up in Connecticut. I spent three or four years up there working on propellers and environmental systems. And then I got a call from a previous co-worker at um, GD that I guess had turned into Lockheed at the time. And he said, how would you like to come back and restart an old R&D group? And I said, well, when do you want me there? So I did that, ran that R&D group, stood it back up. We had about 14 people all the way from associate engineers to PhDs and ran that for about nine years. And things got really kind of grim down there. We went from something like 40,000 people down to 14,000 people. So it really wasn't a whole lot of fun at the time. So I left and uh, went up to Pennsylvania and worked for a place called Liberty Technologies for a couple of years. And they had developed a method of doing radiography without film. You could use these plates and they... You expose them, hook it to a computer, and you get the x-ray image. And then you could go erase the plates and do it again. A real technology advancement. Then I went to, well, I think it was during that same time, I was an expert witness for an H-46 crash in Canada. Luckily, that never got to trial or court. It sounds cool, but it's a very difficult situation to be involved in. Then I spent a couple of years at a place called Laser Technologies Incorporated in Pennsylvania, and they developed and, and sold a system called Shearography, which is a variation on holography. That was very, very educational, a lot of fun. But I didn't really like being so focused on one method like that. I wanted to get back into doing a variety of things. So at that point, I became aware of and went to Dassault Falcon Jet where they make the big private jets, the Falcons. And I was, have been for, for 20 years and it's coming to an end in the next couple of weeks, the program manager for non-destructive inspection for the Western Hemisphere. So I'm not sure the exact number of airplanes anymore, but we've got something over a thousand airplanes between New York and Australia. During that same time, I was also the, um, Structures engineering manager for a few years. I stood up a new group in Wilmington, Delaware, and I was also program manager for the Coast Guard's HU-25 Falcon 20 program. And we've gone through all that, and now I'm looking at uh, punching out for the last time in a couple of weeks. Now, I know that you also are involved with the Civil Air Patrol. What do you do there? Yes. I've been there for a long time. You know, I was a cadet when I was a kid, but then... Um, that went along for many years, and like most of us, we stuck around because we wanted to give back. The cadet program did so much for us. We really credited a lot of where we wound up being with CAP. And I met my wife there, actually, as another cadet. I went through, been to a number of places, a variety of wings, and uh, most recently, Pennsylvania, I was a director of cadet programs, and then I was went to the region level and directed a uh, region staff college at McGuire Air Force Base. And then I was a vice wing commander for a while. Now I'm just kind of laying low and flying and just 
an advisor of the wing commander kind of thing, which is where I'm perfectly happy to be. Well, let's talk about aircraft structures. And I'd like to start off with a little bit of history because we know that aircraft, if you look, go to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, you'll see the Wright Flyer. And so it's a wooden frame with fabric stretched over it. And we don't make too many airplanes like that anymore. So can you quickly just summarize the history of aircraft structures, how materials and how they're used have evolved over the years? <laughs> sure. In five minutes or less. Uh, five minutes <laughs> or less. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, as you say, it started off with just a frame with fabric stretched over it. It kind of went on from there. A monocoque structure is theoretically where all the stress could be taken up by the skin. As opposed to the frame. Yeah. Then it went on from there to where it's, it's nowadays, most of them, as far as I know, are semi-monocoque, where the stress is taken up and shared between the skin and the ribs and the stiffeners. You don't realize how much stress that is on the skins, but I was really astonished to see when I went to Dassault when they were trying to replace a large section of the fuselage skin, how much they had to actually jig the whole airplane in tooling to make sure that nothing moved and nothing wound up with residual stresses was twisted or anything like that. It was pretty amazing. So all of that kind of thing, thinking about stresses and fatigue and all that, has to consider both the skins and the structure underneath it. And it's interesting how we've learned with experience over the years. The first, I think it was the first jet airliner was the Comet, the British Comet. And several of them, you know, obviously it went higher than previous airplanes and was pressurized and whatnot. And they lost several of them. I think, I don't know, maybe three they had all been over the ocean and whatnot, so they couldn't figure out why. And they finally brought some back and realized that all the windows in the comet had square corners. And they didn't realize how much stress was created by pressurizing and unpressurizing the fuselage. And cracks started at those sharp corners. So if you look at airplanes today, you won't see anything with sharp corners on the windows. They're all curved. Back then, up through, oh gosh, I don't know, 70s, maybe 80s, most of the designs were considered safe life, especially if you think about engines. We really weren't able to calculate much, think about crack growth, anything like that. So they simply said, after X number of cycles or hours, you simply replace these parts. Because of fatigue damage. Doesn't matter. After this many cycles or this many hours, simply replace the part because we didn't know how to do anything better than that. And then it went to another design philosophy that was fail-safe, to where if a part failed, there were other structural parts near it that would take up the stress so that you wouldn't automatically lose the airplane by that happening. Then we learned some more painful experiences. In 1969, there was an F-111 that was, I think they were doing some rocket tests, but anyway, it was fairly low level and one wing came off. Because of that, it rolled and, you know, the crew ejected in the, in the F-111's capsule and it was outside the envelope and went right into the ground and, you know, they lost the airplane, they lost the crew, everything. Because of that, when the Air Force, you know, really started looking into why and everything, they came up with a concept called damage tolerance. That is, 
we're going to start getting in a little bit of nerd bill here. The inspections can only find so much. There's a minimum size crack or flaw that can be found. And once they determined what that was for a given situation, they would assume that size flaw was there from day one. Based on that and being able to model crack growth, they would say, okay, assuming this size flaw is in there from the beginning, we need to look X number of hours or cycles into the future to where it would be detectable. And that's when the first inspection would be. And if nothing was found at that point, we'd go to the same time again to the next inspection. And that's the kind of design scheme that is used today. There was also an issue that nobody had really thought too much about up until 1977 when a 707 lost the horizontal stabilizer. It was a fail-safe design. The horizontal stab had two spars, and one of them, it turns out, had been cracked. But it was in an area that was uninspectable, and so nobody really knew about it. And they went, continued to fly that airplane for about 6,000 hours to where the crack grew to the point where all the load was being carried by the forward spar. And then they hit some turbulence that normally would have been perfectly acceptable, but that forward spar couldn't handle it. So they lost the horizontal, the airplane crashed. So then they started thinking about, well, gosh, if you've got fail-safe structures, they have to be inspectable. You've got to be able to get to them in order to perform the inspections. Then we go on to 1988, where the Aloha 737 accident in uh, Hawaii, where a large section of the forward fuselage upper skin came off the airplane in flight, pretty much from the floor level on the left to the floor level on the right. And the whole thing just came off. The airplane became a convertible. What turned out to be the case was we often have situations where there is an acceptable flaw size. And when you find that, you don't necessarily replace or repair the part. You just inspect it more often until it reaches a critical size and then you replace it or repair it. But nobody had really given a whole lot of thought to well, what if you have a whole bunch of those lined up and they're all acceptable, but there's a bunch of them lined up, then what happens? And it turns out that's exactly what happened. And the fuselage at the um, lap joints for the upper and lower skins just unzipped and it came off. So we went back and took a look at that and figured out why and came up with, you know, modified the, the manufacturing process and the inspection criteria. So as I've heard many people say in other podcasts, you learn from the blood of previous people how to you know, improve things. So loads affect the shape and weight of the airplane and selection of materials, types of loads on an airplane. You've got maneuvering loads, aerodynamic loads, gust loads, landing and braking loads. My gosh, if you look at some of the YouTube videos of airplanes that have landed in a crosswind, they're really dramatic. And you'd normally think about landing gear. It's like, well, you know, the loads are up and down, but not when you take a look at how those airplanes are landing in a crosswind. Sufficiently extreme sometimes if the wingtips hit the ground. So you have to go from there. And what are the gear attached to? And what do these stresses do to other things and whatnot as well? One of the things that 
I, I once noticed is I was at an air show and there was an F-16 next to an F-A-18. And those are two airplanes that have a fairly similar mission. They're both multi-role fighters and they're roughly the same size, not exactly, but close to it. And then look at the landing gear. And of course, the F-A-18's landing gear is much bigger and heavier than the F-16's landing gear, which almost looks spindly. The reason is, of course, is because the loads imposed on the F-A-18 in the aircraft carrier environment are much higher than an F-16 taking off and landing from a runway. And that really drove home how loads and the different loads that an aircraft might experience in flight because of its mission drive the design of the structure. And it's, of course, it's not just the landing gear. The landing gear itself attaches to the rest of the structure of the aircraft. And the F-A-18 has a much stronger, heavier structure than an F-16 does for exactly that reason. Thanks for leading me into that, actually. <laughs> I was going to comment. That's a great example. And, you know, back in the early to mid 80s, the Navy took some F-16s out at Top Gun. And, oh, my gosh, there was a big panic because they were breaking them. And I wound up going out there right after the first Top Gun movie came out. And, you know, I had to explain to them, it was like, guys, I understand completely why Navy pilots always land like they're on the carrier. I got that. It's a very perishable skill. You got to do it all the time, no matter where you are. But they had to understand that these were Air Force airplanes that were not designed to do that. I honestly don't remember how it worked out. There were other issues with it at the time as well, but that was really interesting. You know, we had to say, you keep landing them that way, you're going to break them. And so I guess things worked out. And, you know, eventually the ends were replaced by the ones that they have now that had been embargoed from Pakistan. But yeah, that's a really dramatic example. You're right. I think another interesting kind of load is heat loads, thermodynamic loads. As airplanes get faster and faster, just moving through the air and the compression of air by the high speed creates heat. And so there comes a point where it restricts your use of materials because certain materials simply can't handle the heat loads. So as well as having traditional loads, we think of like maneuvering and aerodynamic loads and landing loads, there's also thermodynamic loads. Yeah, absolutely. And for high-speed aircraft, that can become absolutely critical. Right. In fact, it'll drive material selection. As a matter of fact, I just, it may have been this morning, listened to the podcast about the Mirage 2000. And I guess it was rated up to Mach 2.2, and it could have kept on going higher than that. But that was the point where things would start to melt. <laughs> and so they intentionally restricted themselves to no more than 2.2. And Engines are really dramatic in that way, too, and I'm certainly no engine expert, but their performance is really driven by, you know, the maximum pressures and temperatures that they can withstand. So there's been a lot of uh, new material development for high temperature stuff for engines that's come along, too. I think another area of loads that design has to consider loads from damage. With a military aircraft, it might be combat damage for example, being hit by a missile yet not falling apart. But there's also damage of, say, hitting a bird. The windshields of military aircraft that have to go low and fast, like an F-15E, where they're going to most likely hit a bird because of simply where they operate, are very, very thick precisely so that they can survive 
a impact with a bird. And of course, commercial aircraft have uh, similar considerations. You don't want to hit a bird and, and take out all the flight controls. Absolutely. Of course, there was that Airbus on the Hudson that uh, took a whole flock of birds and wound up going down, losing both engines. And it's interesting, too, that there's both with canopies and engines, they have to be certified to withstand uh, the impact of a certain pound bird at a certain speed. And I know, I think it's still there. When I was at Lockheed, we had a chicken gun at the uh, factory and they would send somebody out to a local farm to pick up a chicken in the morning when they were going to do the test and uh, come back. I'm sure there are people that will ask questions about this, but can you say they did it humanely? Didn't exactly wring the bird's neck. They put it in a box and I don't know how they did it, but it, it was as acceptable as could be, I guess. And then they actually fired the chicken at the F-16 canopy. And it was amazing because you could see in the time-lapse photography, huge wave travel back along the canopy and then hit the bow in the back and come back forward. And, you know, after it was all over, there was no distortion at all. It was amazing. And they do that for engines too, I guess. So actually, that kind of a funny story. They do it for trains too. And there was a story about, I don't know for sure, they were doing this one day and they shot the bird at the train and it went in the front all the way through the engine and out the back. Holy cow, what was going on? And it turns out, well, somebody had neglected to thaw out the frozen bird and it was like a cannonball. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also uh, loads that are imposed on airframes by maintenance. For example, jacking the airplane up or people walking on the airplane or towing the airplane. And so you might be able to have very, very thin gauge metal just based on the stress analysis of aerodynamics and maneuvers. But if you need to have somebody walk on part of the airplane and they put their foot through the skin because it's just too thin, it can't handle that concentrated load. That's also a consideration that people don't think about, but it's very much there. Oh, yeah. And if, you know, you fly on a commercial airliner, look out the window and there's markings on the wing with, you know, lines and say walkway or no step, that's pretty common. And you talk about maintenance issues. There was, I don't know, it was a long time ago. I don't remember, 80s or 90s. There was a DC-10 in Chicago, took off, and I think it was the left engine and pylon came off the airplane and they rotated up and took out the leading edge, the slats, all the flight controls, everything. And the airplane wound up crashing and losing everybody. And the reason that happened was because of maintenance procedures, how the engine was supported when they were taking it off the pylon. And they didn't follow the proper procedures that were in the maintenance manuals and they used a forklift instead of what they were supposed to do. And it wound up stressing all the bolts that attached it to the pylon. And that's why it came off. As a result of that, I think every airplane in the world that had an engine on pylons like that had to have the attached bolts inspected. That was one of the ways that I learned. And to this day, I cannot walk near an airplane in a hangar without being very conscious of the grounding wires that are attached to the floor someplace. I was a young guy at the time, new, and the company had a Convair 880 for a company plane. 
and we had to go do this, check all these bolts. And I was the first guy in the group to have a degree. So they were giving a college guy a hard time and I had to pay my dues and all of that. And these were great guys, but they made me pay. And, uh, you know, we went out to the airplane and I was up on a stand and I had my hand stuck in a pylon in the dark access area. And there were little flashes of light in there and I couldn't figure out what it was all about. And my fingers were tingling and I looked down and the guys on the floor were just rolling around laughing because they knew full well the airplane had not been grounded and it was just loaded with static electricity and my electronic equipment and whatnot. So I can't go near an airplane without looking to make sure there's a grounding wire there nowadays. But I'm sure everybody has stories like that. I think that to sum up, the structure of an airplane is very much driven by its loads. And whether that airplane is, say, a bush plane or a tactical combat aircraft or an airliner, it's going to experience a very different set of loads over its lifetime, and that's going to drive its structural design. Why don't we change subjects a little bit and talk about materials? As we said at the beginning of aviation, airplanes were built out of typically wooden fabric. For one thing, it was easy to work with, and it was easily available. But we also know that airplanes didn't stay built out of uh, wood and fabric for very long. So tell us a little bit about the materials that these structures are made out of. Yeah, you know, they started off with, as you said, the the wooden frame and, and, you know, fabric covered. But then we kind of moved into aluminum. It's light and strong, though it doesn't handle really localized stresses very well. It's easy to manufacture. Aluminum is relatively soft for machining and forming and riveting, but it loses strength at high temperatures and it's prone to corrosion. So the other option was steel, but steel is strong, but it's heavy. Better than aluminum handling stress concentrations, which is why it's used for landing gear, but it also is prone to corrosion. So another option became titanium, which is strong and light, can handle high temperatures, but it's expensive and difficult to handle in manufacturing. In fact, it's very expensive and you'll find, you know, most of it in engines and very little of it in the airplane structure itself. There's some, maybe engine mounts or something. The thing about titanium is that if you want to go Mach 3 or so, you really need to use titanium or something like it, which is one of the reasons why airplanes with very few exceptions have not gone that fast because you have to build them out of very expensive stuff. And that's a good reason to say, well, we'll accept a slower speed. Right. Jet engines, I mentioned earlier, also use really exotic materials to handle the high temperatures and rotational loads. And even a lot of those are composite now, non-metal. And then you get into composite materials, which are actually, it's kind of funny, it takes you back to the old school wooden structures because wood is actually a composite as well, but we don't use wood anymore. We do, basically it's usually, structurally, it's fibers embedded in a matrix. You'll have long carbon fibers embedded in, say, an epoxy, something like that, which is why a lot of people call it just a plastic airplane. For non-structural stuff, you see a lot of fiberglass or Kevlar, which is, a brand name. It's it's actually an Arabid. And it's got great directional strength, unlike metals. Very high strength to weight ratio. You can do what's called aeroelastic tailoring, 
A great example of that was the X-29. There were two of these airplanes that were experimental that had forward swept wings. And forward swept wings go back a long ways to World War II. The Germans had some. And what happens with a forward swept wing is they tend to bend upwards and twist. They diverge and eventually will break off the airplane. And you make them strong enough not to do that with metal and they're just too heavy to fly, basically. So with the X-29, they made the wings out of carbon composite. And depending on how you lay up each layer and the direction of the fibers, you can tailor how the loads are taken and prevent it from doing that kind of bending. Same sort of thing could be said of aileron reversal because, and I don't know, I, I heard somebody else on another podcast talking about that too. You know, when you deploy or move the ailerons, you're also going to twist the wing and you have to either build it strong enough with metal or maybe use a composite where you can tailor how those stresses go and prevent it from doing that too severely. So it's really an amazing capability. But unfortunately, there are things we don't know about it as well. And I hope I don't get too much criticism for this. But there was a 787 as an example that had a uh, battery fire from their ELT. And there were pictures showing the, the heat damage on the outside of the airplane. The white paint was all scorched and whatnot. And typically, we can easily, with metals, go and determine the extent of heat damage. Because with aluminum, when it's exposed to heat, the conductivity will change. And we can easily measure that conductivity, and you can tell the extent of the heat damage and then cut out that material or somehow repair it. We honestly don't know how to do that with composites. You can look at the extent of the visual damage, but from my point of view, as a guy that's trying to figure out how to determine the heat damage, we don't really know what it is. Does it somehow affect the carbon fibers? Does it crystallize them or something? Does it affect the matrix? Maybe it outgasses and there's porosity in there afterwards. We don't know what to look for. And, you know, a lot of tests are done where they expose composites to heat and they then go look at it, usually with ultrasound. And it's like, well, okay, but you don't really know if you saw the whole thing. You saw it difference, but is that really after? So there's a lot of work still going in that area. There's also a real problem with composites that we're getting better at, but you can have a whole lot of subsurface non-visible damage and the surface looks just fine. Theoretically, you can drop a tool or walk on it or whatever, and it creates damage at subsurface layers, plies, or at the honeycomb a lot of times, the carbon skin or the other materials, Kevlar or fiberglass, is kind of flexible just a little bit. And you can impact that and the skin will spring back, but the core will remain compressed. And it'll, be, it'll look like crushed core or there won't be any bond between the skin and the core anymore. And you'll see that kind of thing with support vehicles like baggage handlers, catering trucks, things like that with high mass, low velocity kind of impact. The University of California at San Diego built a typical representative fuselage section. 
and it had carbon skin and carbon stiffeners and carbon frames. And they did that. They took something that represented a, a catering truck and impacted the side. And it was absolutely no visible damage on the outside, whatever. But on the inside, there was tremendous damage. So we have to be aware of those kinds of things too. And you know, our, our people need to know they have to be specially taught how to look at composites as opposed to metals because you're looking for very different things. I was going to say, I think you raised the point about weight before, and I think that's such a critical thing because weight is the enemy of aircraft. Weight means lower payload. It means lower performance. It means uh, higher fuel consumption. Weight is bad. And with structure, of course, the more material you use or the varying kinds of material, the heavier it gets. So you've got this constant trade-off where you have to be light to have the performance and mission capabilities that you need in aircraft, but you have to be strong enough that you can sustain the loads. And that tension is at the heart of aircraft structural design. Absolutely. Everything we do is a trade-off. And that makes it tough on us because if you're trying to design things to the minimum weight, they become a lot more critical getting them damaged or how much damage is a problem and how precise the measurements you need to be when you find something. One of the things that we do a lot of is two primary things for in-service aircraft. There's corrosion and fatigue. And when you find corrosion, at least in the civilian world, you generally blend it out. It's nothing like you'll see on somebody's pickup truck in the winter. <laughs> you know, it's very, very minor but you can see it visually. And what is done is it's blended out and removed. And then we make a thickness map that's kind of like a contour map on a, um, and I'm suddenly forgetting the name, uh, you know, the typical contour map of, you know, mountains and hills and whatever. And those measurements have to be extremely precise because stress and design engineers take those numbers and redo the stress analysis to say, okay, the remaining metal is thick enough to handle the loads that it should, or no, gosh, we need to do a repair of some sort and then design that. So it's really kind of tough to do, especially since this stuff is so thin to begin with. It could be down, you know, as, as thin as half a millimeter, which is 20 thousandths of an inch. And when they want that kind of precision, it becomes very difficult to do. That's pretty close to the limit of the capability of the measuring equipment. So, yes, you're right. You really got to walk a fine line there as far as how strong do you make it versus how light it needs to be and so forth. That's a real challenge. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. 
That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Now, I think there's also some specialized kind of materials that besides the primary structural materials you've mentioned, stealth aircraft need to have different kinds of materials that either can absorb or uh, reflect electromagnetic radiation in various ways. You've got the material that goes into aircraft transparencies. That's a whole science in and of itself. Materials that have the desired optical properties that can be formed into these large bubble canopies that are strong enough. Then you've got materials that you make radomes and things like that out of that have to be both structurally strong that often have to handle very high temperatures because they're on the nose, let's say, of a high-performance airplane, and that yet are transparent to radar at certain frequencies. There's an awful lot of specialized materials that are used in aerospace. Oh, absolutely. And obviously, we don't want to talk much about um, stealth materials, but there was a good series of articles in Aviation Week that talked about the state of stealth, and I would just send people to that. You know, obviously, cannot either confirm nor deny the standard answer as far as how that stuff really works, but it's very complicated. And uh, yeah, you think about things, can't have antennas sticking out of the airplane anymore and things like that. So you've got areas that are like one-way windows. They got to deal with the radar that you don't want reflecting anymore. And at the same time, you need to be able to transmit your communications emissions and whatnot. So it's very, very complicated. Yeah. Most of what we wind up dealing with is how materials and structures fail. That's really a large part of what my part of the industry is focused on. They fail when the loads exceed ultimate loads, which is a design load multiplied by a safety factor. They fail from fatigue, and, and that's the biggest thing. They're repetitive loads in usually opposite directions. They cause cumulative damage, like pressurization cycles, your combat maneuvers, low-level flight, that type of thing. No matter how good we've gotten at modeling now, as far as crack growth and where things are going to fail and so forth, we still have to do some destructive tests. Usually at the beginning of a program, one airplane, one example of it, is put into static and fatigue tests because always something breaks that we hadn't anticipated. I remember once when I wrote the inspection manual for the F-16, you know, we got data from the stress and design guys saying, here are the areas that are likely to crack and this is where you need to look and so forth. I said, okay. One day I was walking off through one of the engineering buildings where they had an F-16 and it was like these little steel pads that were maybe six inches by six inches that were glued like all over the airplane. And they had it all attached by cables to what looked kind of like a kid's mobile over their crib and just pulling and pushing constantly and simulating the whole life of an airplane and more. And walking through this hangar, all of a sudden we heard something really loud that sounded like a shotgun going off or whatever. And it was like, yep, something broke that we didn't anticipate, you know, and then they had to stop the test and we go back and they either modified the structure or, or did whatever was needed to be done for that. But, you know, we still have to do those sort of crude things. You know, we aren't good enough to model anything yet, although we've gotten a lot better. So there are a number of sources of failure, stress concentrations. And what they are is 
areas where if you look at a cross-section of a structure with lines going through, it looks like water flowing or something. Those lines are lines of constant stress and they can't be broken. So if you put a hole in the middle of this thing, these lines have to go around it. And the areas where they do that, the lines are closer together and that's a concentration of stress. Same sort of thing happens if there's, a, say, a scratch on the surface. The lines get squeezed together a little bit more. Another stress concentration. When I pre-flight a general aviation airplane, I very carefully inspect the leading edge of the propellers because if there are any dings or nicks, it kicks up a rock or something. That's a stress concentration. That's where the propeller blade could break in flight, which would be a very bad thing to happen for exactly that reason. And, and that's where, getting ahead of myself a little bit, but... That's also an issue, whether it be a repair or something else. You have to think about, for example, how close a hole is to an edge, fastener hole, because that's a stress concentration. And they're very particular when, you know, uh, you design, you're going to put a doubler on or something. They tell you exactly where to drill the holes so that it's in the right kind of place. Also, changes in cross-section should not be abrupt. If they're really sharp, you'll get a stress concentration. So there'll be a radius there instead of a right angle. Some years ago, there was an F-15 where the entire nose section broke off in flight. And I forget all the details, but turned out what happened was the canopy rails on each side, I think it was an F-15E, so it was behind the Wizzo, had that problem. There was too abrupt a change in cross-section. And over time, they wound up cracking and the nose just came off the airplane in flight. Of course, they went back and they inspected the rest of the fleet and modified the design and, and repaired the ones that were out there and whatnot. So that's, that's a really, really big deal. Then there are design deficiencies. Like I said, the, the Comet windows were a good example. Then there are material deficiencies. You know, there can be both internal and external surface imperfections that, that reduce the overall strength. There was a uh, DC-10 that crashed in Sioux City, Iowa. And, you know, the DC-10 is a trijet, and the engine in the center, number two, had a uncontained failure of one of the, I think it was a turbine disc. It came apart and wound up, because of the design of the airplane, going through all three hydraulic systems and taking them out. And as a result, they had no control of the airplane and so forth. So what it turned out to be, and I'm not sure I remember all the metallurgy right, but there was in that disc, in manufacturing, it was titanium, and it was called uh, an alpha inclusion. And it was just tiny little piece that shouldn't have been there. It was a metallurgical discontinuity. And at some point, it came out leaving a pit, and that pit was a stress concentration that grew over time and then failed. But it turns out in manufacturing, they weren't looking for that. They didn't think that had happened. So they uh, went back and they changed the process and they changed the inspections for it and so forth. Things like that can happen. And there are also processing deficiencies. Heat treat can be a problem if it's not followed properly, failure to follow procedures and so forth. ID marking of all things can be a real problem. If you don't follow the procedures for that too, you can wind up scratching the surface, which becomes a stress riser. 
it's a really bad thing to use a lead pencil on bare aluminum because that becomes a corrosion immediately. That's basically a battery. So another one is uh, service conditions. If an airplane's not used the way it was designed, you run a real risk of there being fatigue. There was a Piper Aero, a couple of them, where the wing failed. And airplane took off, wing came off, pilot and uh, student were both killed. And through the investigation and everything, it was realized that every one of these airplanes that was failing was being used as a trainer for a flight school. And airplane wasn't designed for that. And of course, students are going to be a little bit more aggressive with the airplane. They're going to land it harder more often. They're going to do all sorts of things that a qualified pilot wouldn't do. And it wasn't designed for that. So, you know, that's why it came apart. They had to go back and, you know, inspect all the fleet that was out there then to, to make sure that problem wasn't anywhere else. Let's talk about how we inspect airplanes. Because, you know, you talked about destructive testing where you basically pull and prod an airplane until it breaks as part of the development process. But obviously, an airplane in service, you don't want to figure out that the structure is damaged by pulling and prodding it till it breaks. You want to somehow inspect it non-destructively. I know you've spent a lot of your career doing that. So what are some of the techniques for doing non-destructive inspection? How do they work and uh, what do they do? It's a very diverse thing, and it has changed a lot over the years. Some of them have not. One of them is a fluorescent penetrant inspection. And basically what it is, is you, you got to make sure that the surface is extremely clean. And if there's a crack or any other discontinuity on the surface, you apply the penetrant and let it sit for a while, dwell time, and it will seep into the crack. So it's a fluid of some sort, a liquid. It is. That you brush on or pour on or spray on in some way or another. And you let it dwell there long enough and then you take off all the excess that's on the surface and then you put a developer on it that kind of sucks out the penetrant that's in the cracks. And then you look at it at a darkened area under black light and it glows real bright if there's a crack or a flaw there. Sounds very easy. People think that anybody can do it, but there's probably more chemistry and physics involved in that than any of the other techniques. And it's very easy to screw up and not realize it. It can be very effective. So this is a highly specialized fluid that has fluorescent characteristics and is also what I'll call liquid enough to seep into even the tiniest little cracks. Yes, it's amazing. There was an example they showed us when I originally went to school for this. They had a, I think it was a nose gear from a, a beach that put the penetrant on and we didn't see anything. So they let it sit there overnight until the next day and it had seeped all the way through this strut and we could see the indications all the way around. So there was some sort of a path for it all the way through this strut, but not enough that it had fallen apart yet. So this stuff is incredibly sensitive. You have to be careful where you put it because you can't really get it off again. You know. Do you use this kind of technique to inspect on condition or on a certain amount of hours or cycles or both? You know, it, there's just like anything else. There are the routine inspections that are scheduled maintenance. And this applies to all the methods. If there's something that happens like an over G or a hard landing or something. There are special inspections for that. So it, it could be anywhere. It's also used in production as well. 
I assume that aircraft have manuals that specify what kind of inspection techniques you should use in what places and what events. Absolutely. You know, there, there are specific techniques written for each process, each method. There's a technique for it in a particular part and what you're looking for. Typically in the manual, there will be something that describes the part or structure in the area you're concerned with, that describes the kind of flaw you're looking for and how to go through the particular inspection process to find it and how to evaluate it. Come back to that, I guess. But one of the things that's interesting is all of the methods I'm going to talk about. It's the same kind of stuff you would go to a hospital and have done. X-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds. All of that. We do those things and more. And the interesting thing about it is you go have that done at the hospital and it varies with the method and whatnot. But you'll have a technician that does the imaging of some sort. And then you'll have one doctor that, you know, reads the film or the images and then, and then your own doctor who decides what to do about it. In aviation, it's the same guys. You know, they perform the inspection. They have to evaluate the results and decide whether or not it's a real problem or not, or maybe just an irrelevant indication. And if it's a legitimate indication, they have to decide whether or not it's a real problem or not, and whether or not to reject it or say it's acceptable. And then they put their name on it, and that's the end. So these guys have a tremendous amount of responsibility, really. To go on with, with some of the other methods, uh, there's another one called magnetic particle, and it can only be done on magnetic materials, parts. And basically, you magnetize the part you, by putting a current through it or around it. And if there's a discontinuity in there, it will cause uh, leakage fields. And these fields, you then apply uh, basically an oil that's got very fine magnetic filings in it and they're also fluorescent so you put those on there and they gather at the leakage fields you know under a black light again you can see them and it's both stuff that's open to the surface or slightly subsurface you can see some too but that's only magnetic parts so basically you're looking at landing gear and engine so then there's x-ray which is pretty intuitive <laughs> it's you know, very similar to what you'd have done at the hospital, depending on certain things, you know, what you're looking for and how much money you can spend and whatnot. There's also uh, CAT scans. That's pretty much it. And you can use different energies depending on the materials you're looking at, X-ray or gamma ray. We also use some uh, neutron radiography at one point, but that's much harder to deal with. What does neutron radiography mean? It's we use basically neutrons instead of x-rays or gamma rays and what's interesting about that is it can it's attenuated differently it's attenuated much greater by hydrogen and oxygen so that you could actually look at a lead container which x-rays and mostly gamma rays won't go through and you can look at it with neutron radiography and actually see a fluid level within the lead container. And because of what attenuates it, it's very good at finding corrosion as well. But it's very difficult. Un unlike x-rays and gamma rays, you can't turn it off. You got to use a, um, oh, is it Californium 256, I think, source to produce them. And I guess there were some 
generators or accelerators that would do it, but they were very large and clumsy and not very easy to use. This doesn't sound like the kind of equipment that you might have on an aircraft carrier or on a deployable No, airport. not at all. <laughs> no. This would be like more on a depot or at a major manufacturer. Right. And there's very little of that done. That's just something we happen to have at Lockheed for a while. And it's it's got some interesting applications, but they're not very common. Then there's eddy current. What that is basically is a coil, in our case, usually a small probe. And you put a current through that coil and there's a magnetic field produced down the center of that coil. And when you bring it near a conductive material, it generates additional currents and opposing magnetic fields in the part. And that then changes the impedance of your test coil in the probe. And it very oversimplified, that's what it is. You're, you're watching for impedance changes in the probes. And there's many variations on how it's used. Then there's ultrasound, which is, just as it sounds, there are probes of various sizes and frequencies that put high-frequency sound into a part, and you get reflections. Or you can pass it through the part and have a receiver on the far side. It's called through transmission. Again, there are many, many variations on that and how it's done. Many differences between doing it on metal and doing it on composites and whatnot, just because of the difference in material properties and so forth. Which raises an interesting question that was brought up by Fighter Pilot podcast supporter, Ofer Haran. How has the introduction of composite materials affected non-destructive inspection techniques? It's affected it tremendously. (laughs) They're lower density than than metals. They're non-homogeneous. We go to a lot of trouble to train people, even though if they've been previously certified in ultrasound, they require additional training to do composites. With the right kind of sensors and frequencies and so forth, we can actually resolve individual plies, which can be down in the neighborhood of, you know, five thousandths of an inch thick. But it's also very difficult to inspect some honeycomb things, the the skin to honeycomb bonds. You know, there's very few things that can get to the far side of a honeycomb. You'd have to inspect it from both sides. There's other techniques that have come into use with it, such as infrared thermography. That's very capable and, and really good for some things. There's also shearography, which is a variation of holography. Holography is using lasers? It is. How does that work? What shirography does is the difference from holography is basically the beam is split at a different place. But what it does is you look at the material in a stressed and unstressed condition, and you can see the um, an interferometry method, actually. So you're looking at how the laser waveforms interfere with each other when it's stressed or unstressed. So basically, you're looking at changes, movement of the surface due to something or other that's going on underneath it. And that can be very sensitive as well, because you're looking at being able to see things on the wavelength of the uh, laser. So that could be 900 nanometers or something. So it's very sensitive. But in all these cases, you have to understand the material, the structure, 
the material properties and the properties of the energy you're trying to use as to whether or not it will work right. Now, I'm sure that you've got dozens of stories from your career about applying these methods on aircraft, but can you share one or two of them with us where these techniques had interesting results? Did you get that from my notes? Are you coming up with that? Uh, <laughs> Actually, it's been really, really cool because most of what I've done in this world has been problem solving in that we had, it's not always structures either, because uh, one of the problems we had early F-16 was the hydraulic tubes were very small, but they were high pressure. I think it was like 3000 PSI and they were longitudinally seam welded tubes. And somehow or other, somebody determined that the wrong material was being used. It was a, a different stainless, but it was very close, but not strong enough. So we had to sit back and figure out, okay, we got miles and miles of this tubing. How do we identify the stuff that's not right? And then having done that, how do we verify it on airplanes that are in the field with this stuff already on them? And we tried all kinds of things, uh, thermoelectric, that if you have the probe of the right material and like a 900 degree difference between those two probes, it would generate a current. Well, that wasn't good enough. And what we eventually wound up doing was finding a very specific fixture that would hold the probe on this small tube and we could see the difference. And what turned out, we went through all the tubing in stock and then I also had, because they, they pointed at me and saying, you came up with this dude, now you gotta put your name on it. And all the airplanes that were out ready to be delivered I had to verify they were okay. Because what happens is when you deliver an airplane, we roll it out, send it out to the flight line and a company pilot flies it a few times and writes up any discrepancies and they fix them. And then a customer pilot, in our case, the Air Force would fly it and write things up. And that's when they would sign the, I think it was a DD-250. And it was at that point when that form is signed that the millions of dollars would change banks and you can imagine how much interest goes along with that. So they were anxious to have that done as quickly as possible. And I had a vice president at my disposal to say, okay, I want another airplane. And he would arrange to have it put in the right place and opened up and give me access to the tubes and whatnot. And then I'd go out and sign off the airplane. So there was another case that, again, early F-16, there was an airplane down in Panama that was down there for high humidity temperature tests and whatnot. And the way we heard it was the uh, pilot looked up and he realized that the skin was peeling off the vertical stabilizer, and, which is generally not a good thing. And he freaked out. And it turns out once we looked at it, that when composite parts are made in manufacturing, in order to protect them from any dings and damage and all that, they get what's called a peel ply put on the outside. And that peel ply is eventually removed before paint and, and all that. And apparently that didn't get done on this airplane. But it looks identical to anything else after the planes that, you know, manufactured and in service. So again, that happened to be my project and, and I went out and, uh, had to figure out how to detect whether an airplane had that 
particular ply still on it, and then it had to be fixed. And that was a bit of a challenge too, because it was it's so thin. There's one other one that was really quite interesting, and that was back when fly-by-wire was still pretty early. The F-16 was not the first fly-by-wire, but it was the first production in service fly-by-wire airplane. And so it had a side stick controller. The stick was on top of a box that had force sensors in it. And we had lost several airplanes. And, and again, they were over water, so we didn't know why. Uh, there was no way to look at the wreckage and figure out what happened until there was one in Korea that was rolling in on a gunnery range, I think, and, you know, rolled inverted and went down and all of a sudden the pilot stick wouldn't do anything. And luckily it was the family model with two guys in it and the pilot in the back seat was able to pull it out. So finally we had an airplane we could look at and figure out what was going on. And it turns out that the controller underneath the stick, the box, had all kinds of fod in it, loads and loads of it, tiny washers and solder balls and wires and all kinds of stuff. And basically, when they pulled negative Gs, it jammed. So again, that happened to be next up, and that got to be my project. And we wound up coming up with an x-ray technique that would you know, look at that. And it was a very busy image. So we had to have a bunch of people look at it and verify that what we were doing was okay and so forth. And again, we had to x-ray all the ones in production, they're in stock. And somebody else went to the manufacturer and straightened them out and they started kitting things properly and whatnot. But then we had to do the ones that were worldwide as well, already delivered. And uh, my boss called me into the office about noon on a Friday and he says, how do you feel about sunny Cairo tonight? I said, well, great, my wife's pregnant and so forth. And he said, yeah, I understand. Call her and tell her to pack for you. And I did. And it actually wound up being the next morning that I had to pack up and go to Cairo. It was right at, it was going to be the first bright star that F-16s were involved in. We were delivering them to the Egyptians and you know, it was a big political thing. So I had to go over there and do it. And the way it was done at the time, we didn't want to take the things off the airplane unless we had to. So we x-rayed them and put the film inside and the tube, x-ray tube outside, but the seat was in the way. So we had to raise the seat up on the rails, not remove it. And using another high-tech tooling aid, we took a broomstick and stuck it across the canopy rails underneath the seat to hold it up while we did the x-ray. So yeah, it was interesting. And over there, we had no idea what kind of facilities they had. We might have had to shoot the x-rays and then take them up to Ramstein to have them looked at, or there might have been no facilities and we had to just replace them all. So I took replacement controller boxes along with me. And yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. And I also had to do the same thing on another trip to start it off going to Eglin and Nellis and then Kunsan in Korea. And in December, that was really exciting. It gets really cold in Korea. So those are kind of the things that you get involved in that are really fascinating. It's been really cool. You know, it's interesting. When we're going to do a episode, we send out the title of the episode to the Fighter Pilot 
podcast Patreon supporters, and uh, they send in questions and comments and things. And this would seem, you know, non-destructive inspection of aircraft structures would seem like a pretty esoteric subject. But I was intrigued by all the comments that I got back. I'd like to just read a couple of them. One of them was from Eric Hart. And he said, I want to thank the Fighter Pilot Podcast for shedding some light on these very important methods of inspection. As an airframe mechanic working on the capable but aging EA-6B Prowler in the mid to late 90s, we relied heavily on non-destructive inspection. At the squadron level, several airframers were sent to learn how to perform die-penetrant inspections, which is, of course, exactly what you were talking about. That was mostly aimed at our landing gear uplock hooks, as well as our landing gear door latch hooks for our 28-day inspections. It was amazing how many hung gears this simple inspection saved the fleet. AIMD, which is the intermediate repair facility of a uh, carrier air wing, performed eddy current inspections on wing slat barricade points and magnetic particle inspections on various tail hook attachments and truss assemblies. And then he talks about in his post-Navy life, how he's continued to do that, been doing things like uh, working for SpaceX and Disneyland and so on. So he said, these inspections happen every day in places you would never imagine. Thank you for bringing to light the importance of non-destructive testing and non-destructive inspection in this small and relatively unknown industry. There was also a comment from fighter pilot supporter Tom Sparks. He said, I attended a briefing from Airbus chief design engineer where he explained the failure of a vertical stabilizer on an Airbus shortly after takeoff from uh, John F. Kennedy Airport. That was American Airlines Flight 587. I think that was back in 2001. He said it was designed to meet the requirements and he blamed the flight crew for overstressing the aircraft, causing the failure and loss of all on board. He referenced a lot of non-destruction inspection as part of the post-crash analysis inspection, including the TAP test as part of the continuing maintenance of keeping an airplane airworthy. So it, it's just interesting how, uh, how these techniques are really important in our industry. They're not quite as sexy as uh, airshow maneuvers, but uh, if you didn't do this, the wings might come off during the airshow maneuvers. Well, as I said before, sexy is your point of view. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And he mentioned 587. That was interesting. That was not an NDT problem. The vertical was carbon, very heavy carbon structure. And yes, the flight crew caused it, but I wouldn't say it was their fault because it was designed to handle the stress from a full rudder deflection, either left or right, but not for repeated left and right deflections. And this airplane had taken off, you know, okay, maybe you could fault the flight crew for this. They wound up getting into the wingtip vortices from, I think, a heavy 747 in front of them. And as a result, they were pushing the rudder both ways. And it was not designed to take that stress. So another thing that was learned the hard way. You know, and they went in and they changed the flight control laws and that kind of thing to, to not allow that to happen again, I guess. And they put it in the flight manuals and so forth. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. As we come to the end here, do you have any uh, final thoughts? Yes, there's a couple things that were interesting. Just like pilots, you talk about currency uh, versus proficiency. We have the same issues. And I've started doing these seminars at our company because... 
Current means it just means you're legal, but proficiency means you're good at it. And in addition to that, we have started teaching our NDT guys about what I've called risk assessment. And there was a good example of that. There were some window frames on a Falcon 20 that were to be inspected. And the criterion had changed over time. You know, originally cracks of a certain length were allowed and then it got to where no cracks were allowed. And this one guy was inspecting the airplane and he got some indications. And and this is what makes it difficult in many cases. He couldn't tell for sure if it was a very small incipient crack or if it was, you know, an irrelevant indication from an edge or a corner or a fastener hole. And so he called me and another guy out and, and we spent a lot of time looking at it. And it got down to the point of saying, all right, let's think about this. What's the, uh, I mean, obviously you can say it's a crack, replace the window. But that means the guy's airplane is now grounded. It's an expensive process. He has to move it to a different airport to get it done and so forth. That's the easy way out. The other thing is to say, okay, you know, you might say it's acceptable. What's the fallout from that? What's the risk? And they have to understand something about the maintenance cycles and process. When's the next time this is going to be inspected? And knowing that it used to be acceptable to have a crack of X length in it, is it likely to be that long and a problem by then? Is this a safety issue? Probably not if you'll catch it at the next one because it used to be acceptable. And was this airplane used as somebody's private jet or was it used as a freighter and was used in both cases, this type of airplane? And the difference in that was differences in pressurization cycles. So the guys have to know enough about airplanes and stress and how they're used and how they're maintained to make those kinds of judgments. So it's really interesting. I mean, these, a lot of these people are very, very impressive with what they do and how they do it and the responsibility they take. And as I've heard many other people say, you just never know where life's going to take you. You know, I didn't anticipate doing this either. You know, I, I wanted to, you know, fly or go into military. And it was like, oh my God, how am I going to handle this and support a family? And I just stumbled on NDT. And and there's a lot of people that have said the same sort of thing. So don't give up. There are so many things to do in aerospace besides driving airplanes, which is fine. I'll go with you anytime, but (laughs) you know, it's been a great career. I've been doing it for 40 years and there's always something new. Tim, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us. I appreciate it, Ken. Nice opportunity to get the word out there. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. 
National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.